All right, so in this new year, we have su suspended the red letter study just for a bit to get through Christmas, and, and I had some things that I wanted to do um, at the beginning of the new year, and so this is me taking time to do that, but we will get back um, to the, the red letter study eventually, maybe next Sunday. Um, we've been talking really about starting the new year in terms of dealing with our crazy world. This cruel, crazy, beautiful world, as uh, Johnny Clegg sang about it in his song. But the idea that the world is so full of contradiction, so full of paradox, so full of absolute absurdity, which I'm sure you are all aware, uncertainty, mystery, in our lives in general, in the world, how do we deal with that? Jesus told us that he came to bring us life and to bring it abundantly. And so we've been talking the last few Sundays about this abundant life that remains kind of elusive for so many of us, and in no small part because of the way the world is constructed, the way that it's acting out, if you will, and just the, the general shape of our lives. It seems like we look out and we see nothing but scarcity, not abundance. How do we square those two? How do we bring this together? How do we live abundant lives, as Jesus said we could, so we're going to take that to the bank, in a world such as ours? Now, Jesus, of course, is speaking spiritually and not just materially, because if you think about it, Jesus was always speaking to the people at the margins, because they're the ones who would really stop and listen, let's face it. But if they were at the margins, it wasn't that he was telling them that suddenly they were going to have all this material abundance. What he was telling them is that it really wouldn't matter as much because they were going to find an interior abundance that was going to move them far beyond their circumstances, take them out into a whole different place in their lives. And this is something that we've been talking about here, something that I've turned into practically a mantra, that there are two essentials that we all need to have in life. If you want to count your life as abundant, if you want to count your life as successful, quote-unquote, then you need two things in place. And the first one is that you need the ability to be able to accept life on life's terms, exactly as it presents, the good, the bad, the ugly, whatever it is at any given moment. If you can accept that and you don't have to medicate yourself, you don't have to hide, you don't have to project or do anything else, you can take that in and still live with a sense of hope and gratitude, that is an abundant life. Because it's not dependent on circumstance. It's not dependent on the craziness or the contradiction of the world. And it's not dependent on resolving those contradictions, resolving those paradoxes. This is what we're talking about in terms of a successful and abundant life. So again, how do we accept life as it presents in a cruel, crazy, beautiful world and maintain that hope and gratitude at the same time. Now, we here at The Effect have two pillars that we stand on. The first one is to see Jesus as a first century Jew. If we can do that in his context, understand the language, the phrases, the idiomatic phrases, everything that he spoke from the viewpoint of those first followers, we're going to get as close as we possibly can. And we will end run 2,000 years of accretion, 2,000 years of add-ons that were never intended at the beginning. And when we do that, we will see Jesus as a contemplative. We will see Jesus as someone who practices those four S's that we're always talking about in here. Silence, solitude, stillness, simplicity. He practices those. He goes off alone to pray. He is someone who is deeply centered interiorly. And we will find that he's also a mystic. And we realize that mysticism is nothing to be afraid of. It's not a four-letter word. It is simply the ability to be completely present with our intellect disengaged, presence to presence, to have that experience, right, that you've all had, I know, when you're so present to something and you're not thinking about a thing. You will think of those as your peak moments in life. Contemplation understood as the means to get to a repeatable place of a mystical experience. This is Jesus. This is what he is. This is what he's teaching. This is how he teaches. And when we understand that, then the next step is for us to become contemplatives ourselves. 
So if you're asking, how do you square this circle? How do you experience an abundant life in the midst of a cruel, crazy, and beautiful world? We say contemplation is going to be the key. Because contemplation moves you away from the constant processing center in your head that is always trying to resolve the contradictions and allows you to simply experience the paradoxes of life as they occur and learn from them as you move through that experience. So we think here at the effect of contemplation as the answer to that question. Practicing those four S's, silence, solitude, stillness, simplicity. Now when I say that, so many people have, think automatically, and they have, they have told me as well, well, doesn't that mean you need to go to a, mo- a monastery? Isn't that where all this takes place? It's someplace offline. Don't we go to retreats in order to practice contemplation offline? We get up early in the dark and we practice offline. Isn't it kind of an inactive process? Isn't it us just taking ourselves out of life passively, just trying to find God, kind of navel-gazing maybe? I get that a lot. And there is, especially here in America, especially here in the 21st century, that idea if we're not active, when we're not productive, then we're doing something wrong. And it really starts to mess with our heads. You know, we start to get jittery if we're not actually producing something. So how in the world is contemplation really going to take us where we need to go? We're expecting that we're supposed to be working for change, aren't we? I mean, this world is so messed up. Aren't we supposed to be agents for change, making things happen? Now, Richard Rohr, it's always interesting. He seems to kind of line up with a lot of things that we're talking about here. And uh, his meditations this week, he has weekly meditations that he emails out. We're focused kind of in the same general area. He was talking about engaged Contemplation. He didn't actually call it that. He talked about engagement in Buddhism and other in other traditions, but he, he said he wanted to practice an engaged Christianity and engaged contemplation, and that engaged spirituality, if you will, and that made a lot of sense. I want to read, and since uh, I'm going to read about five paragraphs here, if you have your inserts, flip them over to the back side, and I and I printed it there so you can follow along, and maybe that'll help you to absorb a little bit more what he's talking about because this is right on point to what we're saying here and have been saying for the past few weeks. He writes, I'm inspired by the word engaged from my Buddhist friends who talk about engaged Buddhism. What Jesus talks about is not attending or belonging the way we do with church and other institutional religious practices, right? It's not attending or belonging but doing. He focuses on the way we do life and do with and for the neighbor. If going to service on Sunday morning keeps us from volunteer work on Monday, service work on Thursday, and pro bono work on Friday, I don't think that's what Jesus had in mind. The soul is refined in engagement, in relationship, in doing, in connecting. When we named the Center for Action and Contemplation, and that's his center in Albuquerque, New Mexico, I hoped our rather long name would itself keep us honest and force us toward balance and ongoing integration. However, over the years, I have witnessed how many of us attach to contemplation or to action for the wrong reasons. Introverts may use contemplation to affirm quiet time. Good. You know, I can do as much quiet time as I want because Richard Rohr says so. Those with the luxury of free time sometimes use it for navel-gazing. On the other hand, some activists see our call to action as an affirmation of their particular agenda and not much else. Neither is the delicate art and balance that we hope to affirm. By contemplation, we mean the deliberate seeking of God through a willingness to detach from the passing self. That's another good way to put it. That image of yourself, that egoic you know, projection that we all have, is the passing self. It's always in change. Think about it. What you see of yourself now, did you see yourself that way 10 years ago, 20 years ago? It's always passing through whatever the mind is thinking about at the time, how we choose to see ourselves. So he's talking about a willingness to detach from that passing self. The tyranny of emotions being triggered back and forth by strong emotions that come from unresolved business coming all the way, dating all the way back to our childhood. 
the addiction to self-image, the false promises of the world, detaching from all of that. Action, as we are using the word, means a decisive commitment to involvement and engagement in the social order. Issues will not be resolved by mere reflection, discussion, or even prayer. And that's so important to understand. You're not going to fix the problems in your life by just contemplation alone, by prayer alone. I had a friend who always said, God can move mountains, but somebody's got to bring a shovel. Same idea, right? Issues will not be resolved by mere reflection, discussion, or even prayer, nor will they be resolved only by protests, boycotts, or votes. Rather, God works together with all those who love. And he's quoting Romans here, 8.28. Though love is not in our center's name, I hope that it is the driving force behind all we do, just as we do. And just as it was for Jesus, who knew God's love intimately and fully. And for the early church who proclaimed that God is love. Amidst this time of planetary change and disruption, the CAC, that is the Center for Action and Contemplation, envisions a movement of transformed people working together for a transformed world. Okay, so a movement of transformed people working together for a transformed world. Now, based on what we talked about or what I talked about last week and the week before that, we're not so much working to change the basic structure of the world. We're not trying to create a utopia. I don't know how Richard Rohr sees it. Maybe that's exactly what he is trying to do. But to me, it's not about creating the utopia. Because for my money, the world is exactly as it is. And we'll talk about that just a little bit later. To accept it as it is, while we still work for change, not the systemic creating world peace kind of change, but to alleviate the suffering of the people who live in this world, either the ones that are right in front of us or those that we can reach through our sphere of influence, whatever it happens to be. Can we involve ourselves at that level? Even if we're involved systemically, even if we're involved at the policy level, even if we're involved in macro issues, can we always still have awareness of the task within the task? As we're working these high-level projects, whatever they may be for, for world change that is absolutely needed, can we do that while we still see that everything we do should be engendering greater connection, greater oneness, greater relationship with everyone that we touch along the way in the micro? Because if we lose sight of that, Odds are we're going to be more a part of the problem than we're going to be a part of the solution. And we move back into a dualism, a dualistic approach, that it's either or. It's this or it's that. But we can't have a, a unity, a synthesis of the two. The love is not in our center's name. I hope it is the driving force. He talks about this driving force. The only way out and through any dualism, and if, if that word isn't familiar to you, it's the dividing up into two opposed and contrasted aspects of any one thing that we take a look at. You know, male and female, humanity divided into male and female, uh, good and evil, light and dark. If we see things as opposed and mutually exclusive, we're engaging in dualism. And there are philosophers who do that and see the world that way. But in the East, and especially in Jesus' teaching, it's unitive. It's taking those opposites, seeming opposites, and bringing them into a sacred tension in the center. That's what we're trying to do. So he says the only way out and through any dualism, including that between action and contemplation, there's a perfect example of dualism if you see it one or the other. We have to be active. We can't be contemplative. We have to be contemplative. Therefore, we can't be active. That would be dualistic. So the only way out through that is a kind of universal forgiveness of reality for being what it is. Don't you love that phrase? A universal forgiveness of reality for being what it is. This becomes the bonding glue of grace, which heals all separations that law, religion, or logic can never finally or fully restore. This idea of forgiving 
the reality. You know, we can say it's really acceptance. That's what we're talking about. We're right back to acceptance. To accept that the world is as it must be. You know, if we can do that, we're forgiving it for being the way that it offends us. We're doing both at the same time. Even as we work for change. See, this is the paradox. This is the contradiction. Can we accept the way it is right now even as we work for change? This is the, the balance between now and not yet that we talk about. He says we're all on this journey together and we are all in need of liberation, which might be a better word than salvation. Did you know that salvation to a Jew and the Jews that wrote our scriptures and to Jesus who taught us Salvation is spiritual liberation, right here, right now. To those Jews, salvation had nothing to do with Olam Haba, what they called the world to come. It had everything to do with being liberated right now. In other words, to be able to live an abundant life right now, that's salvation. That's deliverance, right? So this idea of liberation, that might be a better word than salvation. We're all in need of it. God's intention is never to shame the individual, which actually disempowers, but solidarity with and universal responsibility for the whole, which creates healthy people. That is an act of racial radical solidarity that few Christians seem to enjoy, but which the CAC is committed to fostering. So, See how easy it is to descend back into dualism, to see these things as separate and in opposition and, and somehow mutually exclusive. Contemplation or action or activism, if you will. How are we going to balance the two? If we're going to live this abundant life, if we're going to approach this year well and abundantly, we're going to need to find that balance between contemplation and action. Can they actually work together? One reinforcing and informing the choices of the other and vice versa. Now this is a very divisive election year, as I'm sure that you are all aware, right? And most of you have very strong opinions about what you would like to see happening, about where the country is going, about what should be taking place. All issues we're not going to talk about happily today or ever in this forum. That's not what we do. We don't talk about issues. We talk about your personal response to issues, which is a very different thing. But we're going to be dealing in the micro here. You get to figure out the macro. But here we are in this election year with our strong opinions. Now, how can we be an engaged citizen acting on our civic responsibilities, doing the things that we should be doing because of the privileges that we have in this country, and also working for the change that we believe is absolutely essential, wherever that falls on the spectrum, and yet still be focused interiorly, still be focused on those four S's, still be focused on the heart change that then will inform the work that we do out there in the macro. Now, in a roundabout way, I think Paul can help us. Apostle Paul. You know, yeah, I was asked just recently um, about uh, Paul talking about how we needed to obey all of the uh, state authorities and how that could possibly be, um, you know, be true, be right, be moral, be whatever in Romans 13. And Jesus was asked similar questions himself that were trying to force him into a dualistic corner to choose between you know, secular or, or spiritual issues. And, and he always wiggled off that hook. He would never take the bait. And he always would come back unitively in some way when someone tried to put him in that corner. Now, Paul absolutely lays down rules. <laughs> he lays them down all the time. And that's why Paul has been used so much more by the church than Jesus to actually build the church itself. Because Paul gives us a framework. He gives us rules. He gives us a way to actually build an institution. And he has, he has to. I mean, what is Paul doing in his ministry? But he's building all of these church groups all throughout the eastern Mediterranean seaboard and he's doing it either by surrogate, he's doing it by letter, he's trying to build communities that are all trying to survive comparatively between all these other groups that say that they're following Jesus or following some other God. What is their identity? 
What is the distinction? What do they need to hold on to? He has to set all of those things. Jesus is talking heart to heart. He's talking strictly within Judaism. He doesn't have to define that. Everybody knows it. Now he's just trying to turn heart lights on within that religion and reform the religion from the inside out. It's a very different job. Paul is laying down rules. The question we always need to ask ourselves is, do his rules still apply to us? And if you see the Bible in a certain way as kind of divine dictation where God is pouring through the writers exactly what God wanted to say, each and every word being inspired, then it's going to be very difficult for you to be able to look at some of these rules and regulations, not just from Paul, but throughout the Old and New Testaments, and realize that there are prescriptive and descriptive commands in the Bible prescriptive and descriptive passages. That is a time-honored hermeneutic principle. Hermeneutics is the art and science of interpretation of Scripture. And they simply mean that some of the things that are described in the Bible are just that. They're descriptions of what took place in a certain time, in a certain era, in a certain context. Others are prescriptive. That means they're evergreen. Right? Do unto others as you would have others do unto you. Okay, that's evergreen. That's prescriptive. It's always good for everyone all the time. We're going to read some of Paul's, and you're going to certainly hope that they're not prescriptive, especially if you're a woman, right? Because he gets out there someplace. The other thing to understand is that he's writing letters here. All of the epistles in the New Testament are letters, actual letters that were sent by one person to another or to a group. Letters are very expensive to pull off in the ancient world. Didn't have paper, you know, didn't have ink the way we have it. They had it, but it, it was very expensive to produce from little sea creatures and so on and so forth, and expensive to send. How did you send these letters? So they only sent them when you really needed to get a point across, when there was something really going on that needed to be addressed. Trouble is, we don't know what engendered the letter in the first place. I like to say it's like a Jeopardy game. You get the answers, but not the questions. We're trying to figure out what was the question, what engendered the letter, the response that we are now reading, because the response is only going to be true within the context of the question. That makes sense to you? It has to be within that context. You take that answer out and put it in a different context, suddenly it doesn't work anymore. It's not true anymore. That's common sense. Unless you have a certain view of the Bible, and then you won't be able to deal with that because now you're going against God's word. We're trying to take the Bible and use it in a commonsensical way, the way that the ancient Jews who wrote the scriptures actually used it themselves. So that's a little background. Let's take a look at what... Paul is saying here, first of all in Romans 13, the one we were just talking about, starting right at verse 1. This one is in your handouts, and I know Alex is going to put it up on the screens. Everyone must obey state authorities. Already i got a problem with that, right? Because no authority exists without God's permission. And the existing authorities have been put there by God. Whoever opposes the existing authority opposes what God has ordered or anyone who does so will bring judgment on himself. For rulers are not to be feared by those who do good, but by those who do evil. Would you like to be unafraid of those in authority? Then do what is good, and they will praise you, because they are God's servants working for your own good. But if you do evil, then be afraid of them, because their power to punish is real." They are God's servants and carry out God's punishment on those who do evil. For this reason, you must obey the authorities, not just because of God's punishment, but also as a matter of conscience. That is also why you pay taxes, because the authorities are working for God when they fulfill their duties. Pay then what you owe them. Pay them your personal and property taxes and show respect and honor for them all. Be under obligation to no one, the only obligation you have is to love one another. Whoever does this has obeyed the law. Now, I just realized I used the Good News Bible for this translation, so I'm sure it didn't match what was up there. I used it because it's so clear here what, uh, what Paul is talking about. So, we're supposed to obey government authorities no matter what? That they are put here by God, that they are ordained by God, that they're working for our own good? Does that sound like the world we're living in? 
Well, I'll tell you what, it didn't sound like the world Paul was living in, and it wasn't going to sound that way to the people who got this letter either. But Paul is making three points here, and we've got to try to parse through these. The first one, the premise that he's using is a Hebraic worldview, that God was unopposable. God is the one without opposites. God, everything that happens only can happen because God ordained it, or else it wouldn't have happened. Get that logic? If it happened, it happened because God ordained it, because nothing could happen that God did not ordain, that God did not will, that God did not promote. This is the way the Hebrews looked at the world. This is the way that Paul is looking at these governments. Everything is ordained by God. Is that really true? This is something that you're going to need to take a look at. What I've talked about more often than not is uh, the difference between the what and the how. I'm not sure that God is involved in all the what's of life, all the details, all the events. I'm not sure he cares what we choose, but he is absolutely and fully involved in how we live our lives. So that what we choose with the right how of living, loving, connecting, unitively, right? We're going to be right in the center of God's will. That's the way that I move through this because how do you deal with this? What is God's role in all of this? Well, Paul is showing that he is coming from a, a strictly from a Hebraic worldview as he lays this out. And then it gets very practical. He says there's nothing to fear if you're staying within the law. If you're within the law, you're going to be fine. I remember when I was learning how to drive, one of the teachers said, always drive so that it's a pleasure to see a cop. <laughs> so if you can do that, Paul is saying, then you've got nothing to fear. It's only when you color outside the lines, then you better be afraid because their ability to punish is real. All right? Now, is that strictly true? All right. So, again, we've got some problems with Paul here. Third, he's making an appeal that even as we talk about this obedience and talk about the law and talk about all these things, in everything that you do, adhere to the law of love. That's what's really at issue. What is written on your heart? Well, this is right out of Jesus' playbook, right? That covers everything that you do. If you are operating out of love, then you are automatically following the law. Maybe not the letter of it on every instance, but it's going to cover everything. So, this is where Paul is coming from. These are the, the, the points that he's trying to make. Now, are you convinced? I think probably not. This leaves so many unanswered questions you could drive a semi through, right? What if the government is oppressive? What if the government itself is amoral? Don't we have a duty to disobey then? and not just a duty to keep obeying? These are the questions, of course, that we're going to ask. Is Paul even being moral here? Is he even being ethical here? But i got to tell you, Paul is just getting warmed up. Let's take a look at, these are not in your handout, but hopefully Alex can get them on the screen. And this is back in the NASB, so it should match up. Colossians 3, starting at verse 22. He's talking to slaves now. We fought a civil war here. We're still feeling the effects of slavery in this country. But he says, slaves, in all things, obey those who are your masters on earth. Wow. Not with external service as those who merely please men, but with sincerity of heart, fearing the Lord. Whatever you do, do your work heartily for the Lord rather than for men knowing that from the Lord you will receive the reward of the inheritance. Now, to me, this reward of the inheritance means kingdom. And kingdom was the quality of life, that abundant life we're talking about right here and right now. Again, never the next life. Jews don't think about the next life. They're thinking about this life. Kingdom is about this life here and now. Knowing that from the Lord you will receive the reward of the inheritance, it is the Lord Christ whom you serve. For he who does wrong will receive the consequences of the wrong which he has done. That would be not kingdom, right? And that without partiality. And then crossing the bar line into chapter 4, Masters, grant to your slaves justice and fairness, knowing that you too have a master in heaven. 
Okay, now this one is another one that's really difficult for us to swallow. But he seems to be invoking here a chain of command, right? The master also has a master, and if the master is really obeying his master, then he's going to be just, he's going to be fair, he's going to be loving in everything he's done and does, and the slave's life will be better. But, that, but does that justify the slavery to begin with? See, this is still the question. Why isn't Paul calling for emancipation? Why is he not doing that? But let's move on. Ephesians 5.22. Okay, ladies, you ready? Wives. Oh, no. We've got to take some cover here. Submit yourselves to your own husbands as you do to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, as Christ is the head of the church, his body, of which he is the Savior. Now, as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit to their husbands in everything. And then, husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. In another place, he says, love your wives, husbands, as you do your own bodies, as you do yourselves. Now, this in itself is a radical change to the prevailing culture at the time because husbands were allowed to be very harsh to their wives we would consider abusive to their wives. And so if Paul is telling them that you need to uh, apply the same kind of standards of God to you as you to your wife, well, that again is going to make the wife's life better. But <laughs> is that enough? Is it enough for you all? Now, what was happening, you have to understand, think again about how these questions that are coming to Paul on how marriage is needed to be conducted as they're moving into these new communities would be upending the social structure. Obviously, Paul seems to be trying to hold on or hold the lid on that kind of upheaval for some kind of reason that we haven't seen yet. But wait, there's more. 1 Corinthians 14, starting at verse 34. Ladies, again, women should remain silent in the churches. They are not allowed to speak, but must be in submission, as the law says. If they want to inquire about something, they should ask their own husbands at home, for it is disgraceful for a woman to speak in the church. And then in 1 Timothy um, chapter 2, he says that women shouldn't be teaching men at all. They can't do that. Now, once again, once again, this goes right back to Jewish culture. This was the cultural idea at the time. Men and women were segregated in the synagogue. Men could sit in the main body of the, of the room. Women were behind a lattice screen, and they weren't allowed to speak. And so he is, again, reaffirming the existing culture and not championing, championing any kind of change. Again, trying to hold on to the social structure, not letting it be upset for some kind of reason. Now, as we move into 1 Corinthians 7, look for a couple more quotes from him, right at the beginning of that chapter 7, he says, now concerning matters that you wrote me. So he's saying right at the top of this whole chapter, because this whole chapter deals with social issues, you wrote me all these questions. I'm going to try to answer them as best I can. He's already been doing that in these other books, but now here's this concentrated chapter. If you want to go home and read 1 Corinthians chapter 7, you're going to see all of the stuff that he's working through because they asked him. This new freedom that they were finding in Christ, this new freedom that they were finding in their churches was just taking the lid off Pandora's box of all these social issues between slaves and husbands and wives and divorce and remarriage and so on and so forth. And Paul is trying as best he can to deal with this, and he's doing it very conservatively. And we're going to see why in a second, I hope. But at 1 Corinthians 7, starting at verse 7, I wish, he says, that all men were even as I myself am. He's single, he says. He's celibate. However, each man has his own gift from God, one in this manner and another in that. But I say to the unmarried and to widows that it is good for them if they remain even as I. But if they do not have self-control, let them marry. There's a great view of marriage, huh? <laughs> for it is better to marry than to burn with passion. <laughs> okay, just 
continuing right on at verse 10 now. But to the married I give instructions, not I, but the Lord. Okay, the first time he just kind of wishes that, that people would just stay single and, and stay apart, right? But now to the married, he gives instructions, not from him, but he says it's from the Lord, that the wife should not leave her husband, but if she does leave, she must remain unmarried or else be reconciled to her husband, and that the husband should not divorce his wife. But to the rest I say, not the Lord. Okay, now he's switching. That was a command he saw coming from the Lord. This is one that he's just saying for himself. That if any brother has a wife who is an unbeliever and she consents to live with him, he must not divorce her. And a woman who has an unbelieving husband and he consents to live with her, she must not send her husband away. So you can see him kind of moving back and forth and just working this stuff out in real time. He's doing the best he can. Sometimes he's really sure that the Lord is behind it. Other times he's not so sure. Sometimes he just sort of wishes that people would do this or do that. And he's coming down with all these rules and regulations. So let's review, shall we? First of all, one, obey any standing authority or any standing laws. Two, pay all your taxes, pay all your bills, and respect your leaders, no matter what. Three, if you're married, stay married. Four, if you're single, stay single. Five, if you're a slave, stay a slave. And be a very respectful slave, working from the heart. If you're a woman, don't fight the traditions that are around you. Submit, don't speak, don't teach, stay segregated. If you're a husband, or if you're a slave master, be loving and fair and treat them as you would want to be treated. Which is a nice sounding sentiment, but we can probably say that's a little bit too little and too late, right? What are we supposed to make of all of this? Does Paul ever clear all this up? You know, how can he even say all of this stuff when it just flies in the face of everything that we understand our faith to be about in terms of equality, in terms of respect for one another, just in terms of equal protection under the law, huh? But if we can look again at the context, I think we can get some clues to the method, or I should say, yeah, the method in Paul's madness, because I think there is one. You still may not agree with it, but I think it's important for us to try to understand why he's saying what he's saying and how that would affect us in trying to make our decisions. First of all, what is Paul's context? Getting back on your handouts, 1 Corinthians 7 again, but now going to verse 26, going to 31. He says, I think then that all this is good in view of the present distress. Okay, like I said, he starts the chapter out with regarding all the things that you wrote me. And then he starts laying out all these rules. By verse 26, he says, I think then that this is good in view of the present distress, that it is good for a man to remain as he is. Are you bound to a wife? Do not seek to be released. Are you released from a wife? Do not seek a wife. But if you marry, you have not sinned. And if a virgin marries, she has not sinned. Yet such will have trouble in this life, and I'm trying to spare you. But this I say, brethren, the time has been shortened, so that from now on, those who have wives should be as though they had none, and those who weep as though they did not weep, and those who rejoice as though they did not rejoice, and those who buy as though they did not possess, and those who use the world as though they did not make full use of it. For the form of this world is passing away. Okay, now we're starting to see some principle behind all the rules that he's making that seem so arbitrary and so unfair. What is this present distress? What is the crisis that he's talking about here? What is that all about? Trying to understand this, he doesn't say he doesn't say because everybody knew what it was. They wrote him, remember? Everybody knows. There's a principle in Scripture that if everybody knows something, it's not going to be stated overtly. They didn't waste ink and page on that. They expected that everybody knew. They weren't writing to us who needed these kinds of explanations. He doesn't say. But this present crisis, this present distress, is the context within which Paul's answers are true. But if the context changes then this answer or his answers as an application of principles behind them 
that has to change too. These are obviously descriptive answers, descriptive commands. Now we know, historically, we know that the church is going through great persecution at this time. And there wasn't a church as we think of the church. It was just little communities that were springing up all over the eastern Mediterranean. But they were being persecuted. First of all, it was primarily Gentile at this point um, where Paul is teaching. So he's in Greece and he's in Asia Minor. And they're being persecuted by Jews who say that they should become Jewish first. They're being also persecuted by local Greeks who don't like what's going on. And all of them are being persecuted by the Romans who are the ones who are occupying the land. And so there's lots of persecution going on, but it may be this and something else or something more. We just don't know. He also says this other interesting thing, that the time has been shortened. So there's a fuse burning. But he doesn't say that either. But we also know historically that the early Christians believed that Jesus was coming back in their lifetime. Because any prophet who prophesied, if that prophecy did not come true in the lifetime of the generation to which it was uttered, that was a false prophet. Jesus said he would return. Therefore, they expected him to return in their lifetimes. And so these two things, there's some present crisis that is really bearing down on the people, making life very precarious for them. And secondly, they've got this really short timeline that Jesus is returning soon. Why is Paul not advocating for social justice? Why is he not advocating for activism, for people to change the situations that they find themselves in? Why isn't he trying to fix the world? Change it. Fix the inequality that he's seen. He's telling the people, you are under the gun, and there is a fuse burning. These precarious circumstances with Jesus coming back soon change the way that we need to operate. He knows that if everybody in their churches started fighting the social norms, it would bring their world crashing down around their ears. There would be no end to the resistance and the pushback that they would receive. Not only that, to change something that is built into social structure for centuries takes at least one generation, but usually many more than that, to really take hold. They don't have the time for this, right? There is no time. Jesus is coming back soon. He's saying, you've got to prioritize. If you start fighting these exterior revolutions, if you fight this exterior revolution, it will take the focus off simply preparing your heart in the law of love for Jesus' return. And that's the most important part. That's what we're all about here. If we back up just a few verses and take a look at 1 Corinthians 7, starting at verse 18, he says this, Was any man called when he was already circumcised? Now, this idea of being called is converted to following Jesus, moving over into trying to follow Jesus on this path. If a man was already circumcised when he was called, he is not to become uncircumcised. That would be an interesting trick anyway. Has anyone been called in uncircumcision? Well, he's not to be circumcised. And that was the big fight that the Jews had with the Gentiles. Circumcision is, circumcision is nothing. And uncircumcision is nothing. But what matters is the keeping of the commandments of God. Each man must remain in that condition in which he was called. And I know it's sexist, but he means women too. Were you called while a slave? Do not worry about it. But if you were able to also become free, <laughs> rather do that. For he who was called in the Lord while a slave is the Lord's freedman. Likewise, he who was called while free is Christ's slave. You were bought with a price. Do not become slaves of men. Brethren, each one is to remain with God in that condition in which he was called starting to see through where he's coming from. He's trying to get the people's eyes off of all the circumstantial inequalities that they're seeing and put it back interiorly, at least first. Because the exterior circumstances mean nothing compared to this interior connection. If we can get that and get it first, then everything else is going to be added. Just as Jesus said, seek for his kingdom, all else will be added. But if Paul knew then that it would be 2,000 years and counting, still waiting for Jesus' return, would he have given them a different answer? 
Would he have said something different? I think quite possibly he would have, but I think the premise, the principle that he's trying to get across is still absolutely true. He would say still, fight the interior revolution first, not the exterior one. Because then, once that law of love is written on your heart, then you can turn to the outward fight. Then you can turn to the exterior revolution. Because if you do it out of that order, you can become so much more a part of the problem. If you haven't worked through all those interior crises, if you can't regulate your emotions yet, if you can't see past yourself to the needs of the others, if you can't occupy liminal space, have your foot in both camps so that you can really be inclusive. What kind of effect are you going to have as you are fighting the exterior revolution? I think we see that in our society right now, what it looks like when people from opposite sides are simply throwing stones at each other and not working in any way with any kind of love or respect that would create a solution that we would all want to live within. And the thing about Paul is that he does respect women. It doesn't sound like it, I know. But if you take a look at Romans 16, starting at verse 1, he says, I commend to you our sister Phoebe, who is a servant of the church, which is at Sencria, that you receive her in the Lord in a manner worthy of the saints, that you help her in whatever she may have need of you, for she herself has also been a helper of many, and of myself as well. Do you know that this is the only place in the New Testament where a woman is commissioned to be a leader in the church body? The only place. Jesus doesn't do it either. But again, we said Jesus was in a very different position, teaching very differently. But this is the only place. Paul is commissioning Phoebe to be a leader in that church and commending her and asking the people to bring her in. And then he names many more women after that and commends them as foundational. And then finally in Galatians 3.28, there is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free man, there is neither male nor female, for you are all one in Jesus Christ. This is really Paul's heart. Everyone is one. Everyone is equal. But for Paul, the main focus right now in that present crisis with that fuse burning was not to rock the social boat, to work within it while developing an interior spiritual formation. That's what he was trying to get the people to do. Not that he believed that people should be enslaved or that women should be subjugated, but that that was not the time to fight for it. Prepare your hearts first. What is going to be our answer in our context, asking the questions that we're asking about our lives and how we deal with our present crisis, not knowing how much time that we've got, of course. See, I believe that Paul's principles still remain. Even as we discard his quote-unquote answers in the name of justice and in the name of equality, there is still a principle there because our true life mission is always micro. First, within ourselves. That's where the true mission field is. Can we turn ourselves over to a perspective that sees life abundantly, that sees life as connected, as one with everything? And then can we put that outward to the person who's right in front of us, the person who is in our path, and to treat them with that kind of connection, that kind of oneness, that kind of love? Now, at the, at the effect... That's what we're always trying to focus on. We're trying to focus on the micro, on interior spiritual formation, trying to establish that law of love in ourselves, to focus on what we can control, which is really only ourselves. We can't control anyone else, and we can't control the wheels of government out there. But we can work on ourselves, and we can control our personal action and reaction to the circumstances we find ourselves we don't focus here on macro issues, but on the personal reaction to those issues. We focus on our ability to be unoffendable. Can we do that, or are we offended by everything? Because what we're offended by is pointing to our unfinished business more than the situation that created it in the first place. Are we able to be liminal, as I said, to stand in the threshold, to see the issues, to criticize our own camp, to see truth from the other? 
Are we able to be resilient? Are we able to deal with our moral distress? These are the ways that we look at how we can be formed here so that we can be good social warriors. We can be activists. We can do whatever we need to do out there. But without having crossed this threshold, we're just going to be more a part of the problem. Because if we haven't resolved our hurt and our trauma from the past, if we haven't learned to regulate emotion, ability to consider others, to love the enemy, how can we be of service? How do we do that? It would just be, we would just be another noisy gong or clanging cymbal. Back to Paul, 1 Corinthians 13, right? That beautiful passage. And we will just be creating more division, more duality, and everything will still be ego-driven. How do we balance contemplation and action? Well, it's not possible until we've spent enough time in contemplative practice to make our action actually loving in everything that we do. Because no goals that we achieve will matter if we have not love. Back to Paul. The world does not need saving the way we normally think of it. The contradictions that we see there, the paradox, the absurdity is actually the point. That's what creates the adversity that we need to actually be able to grow. And cruelty that we see is the proof that we actually do have free will. And because we have free will, then our love is actually real. Because love that is forced or coerced in any way is no longer love. If we didn't have free will, we couldn't love as God loves. But because we have free will, we see people choosing not love all the time. The world does not need to be saved from that. It's what makes us God's children. It's what makes us created in God's image. The world is as it should be, needs to be. But we and the people who live within it need our help. Of course. Can we develop new eyes to see? Can we develop new ears to hear what is needed by the person right in front of us as we're encountering that person? What is needed by ourselves if we're really honest with ourselves as we're moving through our development, our spiritual development? Can we do that? Because if we can and we can start to, then we can start changing the world by alleviating the pain that we are seeing right in front of us, one person at a time, starting with ourselves, always starting with ourselves. This is what Jesus is trying to get across. I think this is what Paul is trying to get across. How are we going to live abundantly in a cruel, crazy, beautiful world? Can we balance our contemplation with our action, our sense of now, with our hope for the not yet, then everything can come together. Seek first the kingdom. All else will be added. Let's pray. Father, we're still at the cusp of this new year, trying to realign ourselves, reorient ourselves in a way that this year can be a maybe a larger step forward for us in terms of connecting more with you and with each other. Help us to continue to do that. Break down what needs to be broken down that distances us from you. Give us the things that we need to take the next tenuous steps towards you. And in everything, help us to let go of what we think we are in order to be able to give our entire selves to you. That's our prayer this morning, Father. Thank you for always hearing us, for always empowering us, whether we feel you or not. And never let us forget we can only love because you loved us first. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's all stand.